For some context, I sat down with Dave and recorded this back in early March 2021, about five to six weeks before Basecamp's policy changes were announced, and the significant impact that that then had within our community. All of this to say that I had decided to delay publishing this episode for a later point in time, and if you're hearing this, then that's because I've gone ahead and opted to share the conversation with you. It's quite likely that some of Basecamp's internal software engineering processes have since changed. Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by David Heinemeyer Hansen, who is the co-founder and CTO of Basecamp and Hay, a best-selling author, race car driver, and the creator of Ruby on Rails. David Heinemeyer Hansen, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software code? That's a good question. Uh, one I've thought of a lot about over the years, given the fact that we are still running pretty much all the software we've ever written at Basecamp. The original version of Basecamp that was released in 2004, written in 2003, and from which Ruby on Rails was extracted, is still in operation, what is that going to be, like 18 years later now? So we have a lot of legacy software at Basecamp. And to me, at least, that notion, legacy software, is a term of endearment, is a term of victory, rather than a term of, I don't know, embarrassment or... uh, cruft or however else you would have it. I love the fact that we have all this legacy code. It means that it was successful, that it continues to serve people, customers. That original Basecamp business has not seen major changes to its feature set since 2009 or 2010. Like it's literally existed in like a pure maintenance phase for about 11 years where the only changes we've made to the software has been to migrate it between hosting operations, ensure that security updates are properly applied, um, any alterations needed for performance. Although the performance part has been sort of small given the fact that any of these services that now live in the legacy space, they're all shrinking. They're all services where we've turned off new signups. So there's just a natural contraction that happens to the business, which means that usually they get to live on smaller and smaller software, which is something we've also gone through, like the, the shrinkage where you suddenly realize, oh, actually, we're vastly over-provisioned for this uh, piece of code, and we can send it off living on some cheaper VMs or, or whatever. But the notion of legacy to me has been one where don't have an expectation that it's free because it never is. And that should not be the bar either. Lots of people keep asking me, why do you still run like the old versions of Basecamp? That must cost you money or whatever. Oh, okay, yeah, fine. It probably does. There's certainly some of the tail end applications, perhaps not the Basecamps, but um, like Campfire. I'm pretty sure Campfire is a net negative right now. Like as it, it costs more to run, certainly costs more in terms of the occasional people attention than it brings in. Okay, that's fine. Legacy is not supposed to be free. Uh, and and that's a feature, not a bug in in my um, perception. But also, I mean, sometimes people can overstate it. For example, we don't keep upgrading all our legacy applications to the latest versions of Rails. We review all the security updates that come out, see whether they apply to the application. If so, backport as needed. But like, we're not on the constant treadmill of updating and. I think that is the right place to go. We are on the treadmill of updating for anything. We're keeping an active feature development, but anything else, uh, no. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm curious. Uh, I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit, and so thanks for kind of leading into that already. The around that idea of like you know that you have multiple versions of your like say Basecamp over the years, and which is a little un, maybe atypical for SaaS products. It's not. It's not that that doesn't happen, but I think you know that seems like something that we've seen a lot in like desktop type applications over the years. Like, oh, there's a new version, and you upgrade it as like an individual, and then for like. But I also know having used Basecamp different versions over the years that it's not always like a simple like. Well, why didn't you? What was it the rationale for? What what sort of advantage did you feel like Basecamp had? 
because you decided to re I wouldn't say even maybe rewrite it, but like build a new version of the that concept. It is a rewrite to some extent, as in we start from scratch. We have three major versions of Basecamp, classic Basecamp 2 and Basecamp 3, and they're all three completely separate code bases. They don't really share anything at all. And that's why we did it, because we wanted Basecamp to do and be different things. If all we wanted was to just add additional features to it, there would have been no purpose. We didn't rewrite Basecamp because there was some sort of tech debt emergency that we had to declare bankruptcy on. No, we did it because we wanted the apps to do different things. And particularly when you do SaaS apps, you really have to think about how much you're moving the cheese around. Like Basecamp 2 looks very different from Basecamp 1 and Basecamp 3 looks very different from Basecamp 2 in, I mean, ways we think are an improvement, but uh, clearly not everyone will think that's an improvement. I think there's a natural tendency when you make software to think that your latest and greatest is actually the latest and greatest for everyone, which is totally not true. Um, I have all sorts of romantic attachments to certain versions of software where I think it went like, downhill after that. I think my favorite example is probably Skitch, where like Skitch 1, whatever, was a wonderful app. And then whatever the fuck that turned into was not a wonderful app that I wanted to use. I respect that uh, about my own work, that someone could look at like Basecamp 2 and think, you know what? That's the best version of Basecamp. Or maybe it doesn't even matter. They're not even making a qualitative assessment. They're just like, this is the version I'm using is not that fucking important to me to be on the latest and greatest, whatever you deem the latest and greatest. Basecamp just works. It's part of our workflow. I don't, I'm not in the market for an upgrade. So I want to respect that sentiment. We wanted to respect that sentiment and avoid this whole notion where we're forcing users to upgrade, forcing them to materially change how they're doing things. Because that's the whole point of why we rewrote it in the first place, right? Because we wanted to do something materially different. We wanted it to look different. We wanted it to work different. We wanted to have different features. So that's the sort of approach to it, in part also because I wanted to continue to create the best software I knew how. There's no way that a piece of software I wrote in 2003 can possibly encompass everything that I've since learned about how we should do project management and so on and so forth. We made a bunch of decisions about features that we just changed. We, we made them different, but we can't change that without then dragging people along. And I don't like dragging people along. I don't like forcing them along. I think it's actually one of the worst features of SaaS is that you don't get a say when it's updated, it, particularly in these huge ways. There are all sorts of SaaS products that have roll out a new redesign. They roll out something else that's like a huge disruption to how things work where you just go like, dude, no, I just want to use the old one. A good example of this is I still use old.reddit.com. I don't think they improved it. I don't think the new Reddit is an improvement on the old one. And some of that is just a moment of time snapshot, right? When people pick it up, which is the other factor here is that if you then choose to say, okay, we're just never going to materially change it. We're going to continue Basecamp exactly as it, it roughly was uh, conceived in 2003. It's probably not going to appeal to new customers in 2021 because, I mean, what would, what ideas are still the best possible after 18 years of, of development? So we want to continue to offer existing customers the version of Basecamp that they want to use. They're great versions of Basecamps. They're not our current thinking, but they're great versions of Basecamps. In much the same way, actually, as I like some physical companies, like uh, there's some people who think the air-cooled Porsches made before 1993, they're the best Porsches ever. They don't want to drive a water-cooled Porsche. That's just not what they're interested in. They want an air-cooled Porsche. Who the fuck is Porsche to say like, no, you can't have that. We're confiscating all your air-cooled Porsches and now you all got to drive the, the water-cooled ones. That's just how it is. No, plenty of physical product companies, they have a deep respect for their legacy, not just Porsche, but like a cameras or, or Rolex watches or any other company that's been around for longer than just five minutes, as seems to be the case with a lot of tech companies, have a respect for that legacy. And I felt like an inspiration in that. I want to be the kind of company that still maintains, let's take an even more esoteric example, Tadalist. Tadalist was a free essentially teaser product for Basecamp we introduced in 2005. We turned it off for new customers in like 2010. 
And to this day, this free service we never charge for has been around like 11 years after we turned off new signups and there's still like a thousand people a week that continue to use it because that's just what they like. That's where they have their to-do lists. And I mean, I am so pleased for us to spend money and never see a dime in return on that simply for the satisfaction of being the kind of company that would respect your legacy to that degree. That's awesome. I want to dig into a little bit of a couple of technical topics here as well. You know, do you use the metaphor amongst your team, technical debt? I mean, it's a concept that I think everyone should be aware of. But it's not a concept that I feel applies to a lot of our code. Because technical debt, at least in my conception of it or how we've used it, is a is a sprint tool. It's preferably, hopefully, something you're aware of. Okay, we're not going to do it the right way. We're going to sort of hack our way through it just to get to some point. And then we got to pay that off at some point, right? People also use it in other terms where just like, hey, oh, the code I wrote five years ago is now old and stayed with my new eyes. So therefore, I describe it as technical debt. I like the first definition better. It's closer to Ward Cunningham's initial idea with the term. And that's not something we engage in, really. We're not on a schedule. We don't have to release software by a certain date. And usually our technique to... If we do have a date in mind to release software is to cut scope rather than ship lower quality. So we essentially always try to ship at like great or above quality, and but then less scope. And then the technical debt, if you use the other definition of it, like old code that now looks whatever, I, I don't consider that technical debt. You could say there's a third definition, perhaps, like uh, my code base is now so difficult to work with that I can't add new features and, and whatever. And that is not something, by and large, we've struggled with a lot, although I shouldn't be that definitive. I'd say there are certain decisions in Basecamp 2 in particular that ended us up in a situation where adding new features at the end felt harder than it needed to be, and that helped inform some revised technical decisions for Basecamp 3 that have held up much better. But it's not something that looms large or something we think about a ton. Hmm. Curious about, like you mentioning Basecamp 2, maybe there was, maybe felt like you kind of got into a scenario where it was difficult at some point to start adding new features or to extend things. But did you feel like that was more on the just the, the general the, the data architecture side of things? Or is it something else about other tooling that we were using in the system it, w- it was one pattern, really, which is this pattern I just, after all these years, put into Rails, which is it's such a small pattern, and we called it um, delegated types. So the idea that in Basecamp, we have a lot of functionality, and I'll just use one example, commenting, right? You can comment on a to-do item. You can comment on a calendar entry. You can comment on a message board. In Basecamp 2, every new type we added needed essentially its own implementation of comments, because comments were sort of, it had their own controllers that were explicit to message, right? Messages has their own comments controller. And uh, there was just a bunch of work then that accumulated that like to support the features that we have. Like you can comment, you can move, you can copy, all this, that functionality that applies to any piece of thing, content that's in a Basecamp project needed essentially this implementation for each additional type. That proved to be like, kind of a long list at the end. Like there was a lot of work that needed to happen. In Basecamp 3, we moved to delegated types where we have this notion of a record um, that each a message has a record, a to-do item has a record, a calendar entry has a record. And you do the generic operations on the record, not on the type. So we only had to implement commenting once because you comment on records. We don't have to implement moving once because you move records. You don't move messages, you move records. And that pattern was perhaps the most important architectural pattern and change in how we build applications at Basecamp in the history of Basecamp. I think it's not an overstatement to say that. It's the most unlocking pattern we've ever, or I can sort of pinpoint to like a single thing. Usually it's like convolution of many things. We made a bunch of different decisions, technical decisions with Basecamp 3, and they all contributed in their small little ways. Delegated types was the one that sort of just unlocked this whole thing where you don't have to re-implement. And that adding an additional type is now very cheap. If we want to add a new thing in Basecamp 3, a new um, feature functionality, it's going to get all this other functionality for free because that functionality lives on records, not on the um, concrete types. I'm curious about how you folks also like 
when it comes to, I know you, you know, you're somewhat familiar with like shape up and, and we, not enough to like probably ask a lot of questions about it, but in terms of you're working on, I think what, six week cycles, I think, is that right? And are you doing much in the way of prioritizing maintenance type work amongst those sprints? Is that typical? And how do you, how does the team go about documenting, capturing that, discussing, prioritizing that type of work and deciding, okay, that's going to go happen in the next couple months or something like that. How, how does that happen? Or does it, do people just kind of find things and just fix things as they, as they see it? So we have had multiple different approaches to it. I think we've finally arrived at a better approach. But the first iteration change, actually, that wasn't really an iteration change. Maybe it was. Our introduction of cool down. So we have six-week cycles where planned feature work happens, and then those six weeks are followed by two weeks of what we call cool-down. And then cool-down is when you tend to all the things you weren't tending to when you were working on new features. Sometimes it is sort of um, follow-up or bugs from rolling out that new feature. Oftentimes it's also digging back in the archive and finding like just bugs about the thing you wrote three cycles ago that you want to fix. And that phase, I think, is a wonderful reprieve that we're not just like in, in agile or, or um, scrum methodology, like sprint, 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 sprint. I just, I find that whole metaphor just exhausting um, in a very literal sense. Like if you're constantly, yeah, exactly. If you're not just running, you're sprinting uh, after sprint, after sprint, and there's no break in between. That just seems like not nice. And I think that just change of cadence and pace as a regular feature of the schedule, not something you have to sort of cajole or cheat your way into is quite important. So we do that, and I think that helps. We have different groups at Basecamp. We have what we call core product. They work on new features predominantly for whatever applications currently in um, in production. For that now, is is has been Hay has had the main focus, but it also it's also Basecamp. They then work on new features. They spend their two weeks of cooldown, kind of tending to those features and so on and so forth. Then we have another team called uh, SIP, Security, Infrastructure, and Performance, whose entire mission is to essentially keep those three aspects of existing running applications humming along. That is dealing with tipping points, that is dealing with Rails upgrades that is dealing with security patches that come down the line. Like the whole team is essentially sort of dedicated to that work, which is far more interrupt driven, which is also where in shape up methodology, we don't bet the whole six weeks for them. We bet maybe half of that time and then we leave half of the time open to reactive work, where reactive work is like just things that come up because they come up when you run the service. And you better have someone around to deal with that. Otherwise, you will be constantly starting and stopping the people who are supposed to be working on new features. And that's not a nice way to work. Um, then finally, I think the final iterations we've just done is that now on core product, the team is big enough that there is a person and it's a rotating role that's dedicated to reactive work. And that's usually because what we found was the SIP project was really, or SIP team was really good at finding like the security and infrastructure and performance issues. But sometimes things come up where just like the feature isn't broken in a traditional bug sense. It's just not working as ideal. We need to tweak it. Customer feedback is coming in. They want something different. It's not working ideally. Where do you put that time? What do you do with that? Um, that is work that falls under core product, but it's kind of not, not big enough to get scheduled. Um, so we now do that with a dedicated person who's, uh, on duty for reactive work. And then we also have another team called, uh, research and fidelity. That's the team that consists of, um, Sam Stevenson and Javon McMally. They deal with, um, framework building on the front end in particular. That's the group that's built everything from tricks to hotwire to turplings to all these other things that enable the core product group to do what they do. I should say the SIP group also consists of the highest concentration of Rails core members that we have at Basecamp. Uh, several Rails core members on there. Um, George and Jeremy are on there. And they do that kind of work too occasionally. It's, it's the same group that just, uh, Jorge just posted the active record encryption PR, which is going to go into Rails 7 that came out of work done by that group, which falls in under both infrastructure and framework building and um, security. So we kind of have these separate groups. It's, it's something we've kind of grown into. It's not something you do if you have four programmers. You can't have that number of dedicated 
time to it. In that case, you have to kind of cycle. And that's something else we've also done over the years. When we had smaller groups, we would eventually, or we would occasionally cycle. We would sometimes do a cycle we called spring cleanup. You take a whole cycle out. You don't work on any new features. You simply deal with your with your bug list and minor feature improvements and, and whatever. And we still do that uh, for the whole uh, product team in December. December is usually the cooldown month. It's a, a short cycle. It's, it's butting up against holidays. And we just kind of take it easier. And in many cases, let people roam independently to fix the things that they want to fix. The fact is that most programmers, most of the time, knows where the body's buried. They are eager to dig them up and uh, give them a proper burial. I like that. The um, I'm curious a little bit about, do, does your team use, like the engineers use Basecamp to organize that type of work or is that handled like in GitHub issues or what sort of tooling do you use on that front to maintain like just like those technical backend type things that aren't necessarily new feature work? Yes, it's all Basecamp all the time. We use Basecamp to track all of that work. We're doing some good and I think required experimentation now to turn our patterns of how we use, use Basecamp into features of Basecamp. Because this is a question I've heard from a fair number of software developers, which is, I'm almost blind to it. We've been using Basecamp to run Basecamp for 18 years. So of course, like all our little tricks and patterns and, and workflows that we've built up over the years, just kind of, they, they seem so obvious to me, but it's not always obvious to someone when they just come to like the to-do section of Basecamp. How would I use this for software development? Particularly, how would I use it for reactive work? Um, and we're doing some work now to turn that in. A lot of it is uh, around a metaphor we call shoots or shoots. I don't even know how to pronounce that actually. I've only seen it in writing. Where, where basically work flows in at a, a triage stage uh, where the team can kind of diagnose like, uh, when are we going to deal with it? It's not we're going to deal with it right now, but um, other parts of the company can dump things into triage. Um, the team is then responsible for dealing with that triage and signing them to other lists and so on. And we're going to do some more work. This is where like Kanban style workflows, I think, really shine. And I think Basecamp has a bit of catch up to do to make the fact that you can do the same thing in Basecamp more obvious and provide more affordances to it. And that's something we're going to focus on Basecamp 4, which is something we're starting on shortly to build more of these things into it. Um, so all these things live in Basecamp. The majority of our sort of discussions about organizing the work, scoping the work, who does the work, is all stuff that lives predominantly in to-dos. We assign the to-dos, we move them between lists and so on. And then what we use GitHub for is code review on PRs. And that's it. We don't use any of the other features. We don't use the wiki or the, um, the, the issues or any of these other things. All that stuff lives in Basecamp. So it just lives one place and it lives next to um, scoping documents, it lives next to uh, discussions, or kickoffs, heartbeats, all these other um, process tooling and communication practices that we have at Basecamp. It's, it's all in one place and it just makes things so much easier. But I, I totally accept that we've done not the greatest job in the world. Um, you mentioned ShapeUp and actually ShapeUp is perhaps one of the first times we've made a more concerted effort to show the world how we use Basecamp to develop software. Uh, it's at basecamp.com slash shapeup. And the first part of it is like, hey, here's our methodology. Here's this idea of the six-week cycle. Here's the idea of the, the cooldown. Here's the idea of using budgets instead of estimates. Here's the betting table. Here's shaping, um, what granularity you should do. And then the final section is, here's how to translate this methodology into action using Basecamp. But that's kind of, um, that's a pitch, like, hey, here's how you could use the product, where the product itself could also do more to present itself uh, for it. We'll be back with our interview with David in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a moment just to say thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these types of discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your friends on social media and or posting a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, is there someone that you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable at some point in your future? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with David Heinermeyer Hansen.
You know, I, I know that a lot of teams, people I speak with, they talk a lot about like measuring the software delivery process and cycle. Do you use any sort of metrics to help gauge the health of your team's performance or do you not give a shit about that sort of thing? It's not that I don't give a shit. It's because I give a shit that I don't want to measure it. Because I think all the measuring velocity and um, other attempts to measure the um, sort of performance of a software team often rely on estimates and other deeply harmful approaches to scoping uh, products, which is uh, or scoping features, which is exactly why we've shared shape up because it's such a diversion from the normal way of doing software where you you try to break things down so that you can estimate it and then you get people to commit to these estimates and then you measure whether the estimates match up with the delivery. It's a fucking world of pain and it hasn't gotten better in the past 20 to 30 years. Well, even longer than that. You take the history of software development. It's basically the story of how humans can't estimate, right? And how they continuously try shame themselves into the ground as they invariably fail and how large software product projects fail because of it, right? ShapeUp is our antidote to that. Don't fix the scope. The scope is the flexible thing. This is why the pitches that we drive feature development off are written in like fat marker. They can't be precise. They need to leave room open for renegotiation during development and implementation. Agile kind of got a little bit of that, right? Like they they kind of, they saw through the, okay, we can't um, do the big planning up front and so on, but then they fucking missed the boat on the fact that estimating, for example, does not work. So what we do instead of estimates is we do the budgets. We don't say like, oh, this this scope of work is gonna take so and so long. We say, this scope of work is is worth this. Like I'd have this feature if we can do it in two weeks. Is there a version of this feature we could do in two weeks? If so, let's do it. If we can't imagine a version of this feature that's done in two weeks, and I only think it's worth two weeks, let's not do it. Uh, and that is just a fundamentally different approach to software development and planning. And um, I find it endlessly healthier. Every single attempt I've seen on, on applying sort of hard metrics to software development end up just measuring the wrong thing or putting the focus on the wrong thing. It's the same thing with most testing metrics or coverages or, or ratios. And they end up becoming uh, goals in and of themselves and in the process become worse than useless. They become harmful. Interesting. I'm curious about that on the testing front because, you know, we pull the like the Ruby on Rails community every two years and most people are kind of talk about 80 percentile type of range for test coverage, right? And and then I hear some people are like, well, that's ambitious or or you could easily hit that number, but you might have a really slow test suite or it might be really shitty tests, right? And what what sort of tests do you find most valuable to invest time into writing on, from your perspective? Uh, good question. I mean, the glip quick answer is the kinds of tests that gives me confidence that I'm shipping bug-free software. Which is not even that glib. That's almost a, a straight quote from Kent Beck. Um, when I last had the discussion with him in a public forum like seven years ago about TDD being dead. That testing, why do we do testing? I don't do testing to design my software. That is a strain of TDD that I've pushed back against for many years and I find it harmful misguided anyway, it does not apply to how I use tests, but I'm a huge fan of automated testing because automated testing is the only way I know um, that I can ship software with confidence. How the, f I don't even understand how people who do not do automated testing ship software with confidence. And if they do, how do they change that software? So for me, it's a fundamental issue that you must have an automated test suite to be able to have confidence in shipping bug-free software. It won't mean that there won't be any bugs in the software. It just means you have a basic level of confidence that what you're shipping is not full of shit. So that's the first thing. And then in a more practical sense, I don't have a lot of religion about this stuff. I will usually try to test at the highest level I can get away with without it feeling onerous. So oftentimes, um, 
that's a controller test. And controller test for me is, is we've called it functional testing. We've called it all sorts of things. It's not a browser driving the proceedings because that is a very slow, expensive test. But it is a test that essentially tickles both the controller and the model and the view because it hits it all the way through. So it does assertions on here. I'm making a mock or not even a mock. I'm making an internal request. It doesn't go through the browser or 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 a web server per se, it goes through Ruby. And then I assert on the responses. And sometimes I'll even assert on uh, the state of the model as it changed behind it. That works on sort of the broad level, like does this even work at all? And to for me, it probably catches like 80% of the errors because a lot of these errors are like, oh shit, like there was a, something wrong in the view, there was something wrong in the control, something that like cost a 500 or, or otherwise that like it was very easy to detect that there's something in there that uh, is not working. If I'm doing more intricate model work, I do, we used to call this unit tests. And then we got into this religious debate about whether unit tests are allowed to talk to the database. And I went, do you know what? This is a discussion I have absolutely zero interest in having. So I'm just going to rename these to model tests such that um, we can get to define what model means. And for me, model means um, at the level of sometimes a pure Ruby model which is just Ruby going back and forth. And other times it's an active record model backed by fixtures. It touches the database, it talks to the database. I have no qualms or purity or fences about that. It exercises domain logic code without the controller, without the view. And that's a great way of sussing out sort of more complicated um, stuff where you want to tickle more states in a quicker turnaround than if you had to go through the whole controller to um, to invoke those things. But I'd say my preferred level is the controller level. Then I'll dip down to model if need be. And then also uh, a fair amount of time will dip up to full-on system tests that actually run through the browser. But I'm not a huge... I used to be more of a fan of those from a philosophical perspective because it tests even more. But you know what? I've come to the conclusion that um, the inherent brittleness that comes with trying to drive a browser and dealing with JavaScript timings and so on just means they're too much of a pain in the ass for me to want them to be the primary way. There are a great way of doing it, particularly, obviously, if you're testing JavaScript code, then that's the only way to do it. Well, unless you're also going to do JavaScript front-end coding, which actually we, we don't do anything of, of at all. We don't do any... JavaScript unit test coding outside of the frameworks we built. But um, otherwise, all the JavaScript testing goes through these, uh, these system tests. So that's sort of a spectrum. What we've ended up with, and by no means is that because we've had that as a, as a target, is actually a test-to-code ratio of about 0.7, which has been remarkably and curiously stable across multiple kinds of applications over many years. So... It's more just a, it's not because I think there's something magic about the number 0.7. It's simply, that's, I guess, where we ended up, where we had confidence enough in the code base. And the other thing about speed is, um, so we do 0.7, take an app like Hey, I can run the entire suite minus system tests in uh, one minute, 20 seconds on my M1 Mac. That is plenty fucking fast. That runs, I think, 20,000 assertions or something like that. And why is it so fast? Because we just fucking use vanilla Rails. We use fixtures, which are incredibly quick, unlike using um, factory bot or, or something else that creates everything you need on the fly. Um, but it's also fast enough. I have no interest in like, oh, you could make it even faster if you mocked out your entire database. Yeah, but then I'd have to fucking mock out my entire database and what a pain in the ass that is. Um, plus false sense of security and da 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 da. Interesting. Thanks for digging a little bit behind the scenes there. So I want to talk a little bit about Ruby on Rails as well. And, you know, unlike Basecamp, which has multiple versions, Rails has multiple versions, but we haven't, you haven't taken the same sort of approach of like redesigning or rebuilding Ruby on Rails from, like from a new conceptual thing, do you feel like do you have a thought on why that's a little bit different approach? I think that in part the architectural underpinnings were just solid in different ways, and a huge part of that was because I just stole them, and I just stole them from Martin Fowler's book Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture. So, like, I wasn't inventing the deep dish on MVC. I wasn't inventing the deep dish on Active Records or any of these other patents. They'd already stood the test of time enough that Martin Fowler had captured them and documented them. So I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is that 
we have changed a fair amount of things, right? Like we have migrated um, within it and the Rails version cutoffs occasionally have had like, oh, all right, we're switching to a new style of doing it or we're switching to a new API and somewhat bridging those things have not been as, as difficult. You can move the cheese around a little bit. Yeah, it just it hasn't panned out that like completely new paradigms have come along that have been incompatible with how we've done, which is actually kind of remarkable, right? When you think about the fact that Rails is from 2003, it's 18 years old and the core architectural patterns today, if you looked at it, at the original code that I presented Rails with in 2003, 2004, it looks remarkably similar to a modern Rails application. There are some differences. We don't really write SQL fragments in the same way anymore. Like Active Record have gotten more, more sophisticated and so on. But like the general feel of it is incredibly similar, which I wouldn't have thought that. And I'm constantly on the lookout for a refutation of that Right, um, I just love looking at like how people do do things differently. It's just it happened to be that the um, request response cycle from HTTP itself, the underpinnings that power all this, really haven't changed that much. And whatever changes we have seen, which have a lot of them been around the front end, I ended up in a camp where I did not actually appreciate those things, um, and I didn't appreciate them as advances that make things better for the for the programmer. So. I've dedicated a fair amount of my career too to essentially preserving the nicety of the development experience that was present already in the early to mid 2000s while still reaping kind of all the benefits of advancement that's happened in front end development ever since. That's what Hotwire is about. That's what many of these other techniques are about. That's why we don't use React. It um, comes to perhaps no surprise of anyone who's followed me for for a while, but I'm a, a huge fan of the Majestic Monolith. I've been on the barricades against microservices uh, architectures and, and so forth, because I kind of feel like, you know what, we found some patterns. Um, well, Martin Fowler and others um, found and documented some patterns that have really stood the test of time in a profound way. And for us to replace those things, we have to replace them with something better. We can't just replace them with something new. And that better um, in, in a wide array of, of cases just simply has not emerged, given the fact that we are still operating under the HTTP general framework, right? Like if, if you're doing something else and if you're writing iOS software, you're using different patterns. Like it's just not the same thing. There's some general software development principles that remain the same, but like they don't look the same. An iOS app does not look like a Rails app. Um, although, I mean, in, in part, it does look like a 2007 iOS app, right? Like there are some structural patterns of how you do uh, GUI programming on um, of these kinds of platforms that actually also have endured for a long time. But that is, um, yeah, I'd say that that's it. That Rails has, has surprised me in its flexibility to adapt to the things that have changed because there are many of those. And then also its capacity to encompass new ideas that build on top of what we've had, right? Rails launched with three frameworks, Active pa Action Pack, Active Record, and Rails Ties, essentially, right? Today, we have, what, eight or something? Um, and those things have been able to sort of build within that and actually augment and enhance what we already had. Hey, writing a controller is actually easier and better when your mailing framework is backed by a job framework such that you're not locking the response when you send an email because it's done asynchronously and so on, right? So in many ways, we've kind of just continued to chip away at all the ways that the original model um, required more manual labor to make optimal things happen. And we've just plucked out of them uh, year after year until uh, like, there's just less and less of that left. You know, one of the things that people talk about, I know that it's not your goal to for Ruby on Rails to say be the most popular and used, widely used framework. I don't think either of us would be advocating for that. And I think you touched on a number of things that kind of speak to the developer's experience as being kind of front and center. I know it's something you talk a lot about, like you enjoy working with Ruby, you enjoy working with Ruby on Rails. A lot of people do. There are people coming into the industry that are kind of thinking, okay, well, can I get a job with this type of technology? And 
it's been interesting watching the trends over the years, and I've been very skeptical of a lot of front-end frameworks myself over the years because I've always felt like a little bit of resume-driven development or like I want to work with the new shiny thing because that's what everybody else seems to be using because I want to be employable. And you, I think you and I probably have a very different sort of career path than I think a lot of people that might be listening that are like, well, that sounds great for you two, but I need to think about my CV in the coming years. And if Rails isn't on the uptick in some ways, or it's not being used for brand new apps on a regular basis, what can I do to find work in that sort of capacity or or should I be looking down? And so I don't, I'm not asking for you to give good advice there, but I do wonder if there's things that we're not doing enough of in the Ruby on Rails community to help continue promoting it, to, to remind people that it can be, it's still relevant and still useful. And I, th- I think you definitely do enough of that to, to a degree. But a lot of people that were early adopters have gone on to start companies. You're focusing on you know, growing businesses, new, new types of businesses, and Toby isn't, you know, he's running Shopify. He's not writing blog posts about how to do these cool things in Rails. And so the people coming in, they're kind of like, well, this is where new people are talking about this other technology. So maybe I'm supposed to be looking over there. So what's kind of your take or perspective on all that? Well, first I'd say that the the, the premise is, is off in the sense that like, if you look at the second crop of major tech companies that came out of the likes of Y Combinator and so on, that have now matured into large companies that hire a high number of programmers, like something like half of them use Ruby on Rails. Like from Shopify to GitHub to like tons of, um, I think Square, um, tons of really large companies that hire tons of people, they use Ruby on Rails, right? It's just not something they feel a need to shout about because Rails isn't new. In much the same way that like my my age-old nemesis Java, right? No one's fucking shouting about Java. Java continues to be an absolute juggernaut in terms of number of developers who work with it, companies that use it and so on. And as much as I, I kind of don't want to be put in the same bucket as Java, Ruby and Rails is a little bit in that bucket in the sense that it is just like at now, it's reached this point of maturity where like there's going to be Ruby on Rails applications running like 15 years from now. I'm certain of that. Like these 18-year-old patterns, right? For example, that the, the fundamental structure of MVC, for, that's not like new. There's only so much you can fucking say about the same thing that like, oh yeah, it's still totally stable and still totally good and it's a great way to build apps. And like, mm, there's sort of limits to, to how interesting the story is. Now, I continue to work in a lot of areas and expansions or I think generally are hugely interesting. Hotwire is a great example. It pairs phenomenally with Rails. It really shines and highlights uh, all the advantages of an integrated framework, what you can do when your framework has both asynchronous job processing and and all these other things, right? Um, So that's that. And then, of course, there's the advent of of new apps, which is also a bit of a misnomer um, in the sense that, like, I hear about tons of new Rails apps launched all the time. Again, it's just, it doesn't have to shine because people don't go out and like, hey, this new thing I launched, it uses Ruby on Rails. Aren't you guys amazed? No, you're not because you're using fucking something that's been around for 18 years. Versus you launch a new thing that's running like, hey, this new thing that was just launched three years ago, we're on it, right? Like that's a story. As it used to be with Rails. In 2005, if you launched your new app on Ruby on Rails, like that was part, that was one of the talking points you had. Rails is not a talking point anymore. Just as Java is not a talking point anymore, at least as in it goes to the core technology and, and so forth. But um, it's funny that um, I, I've seen a bunch of studies. Like, First of all, the, the Rails sort of job market is absolutely enormous. In fact, if anything, what I hear more is um, large companies, like I can't find enough developers. It's not the other way around. I'm not hearing like, oh, there's these tons of unemployed Ruby on Rails developers. That's just not a thing. I've also seen other studies showing essentially the Ruby on Rails developers are the best paid developers in the industry if you look in terms of uh, framework users, which has a lot to do with the fact that it has such a purchase on a bunch of big tech companies that came out of Silicon Valley that pay Silicon Valley salaries and so on and so forth. So I think the, the, the thing is just that you can't stay hot forever. That's just not, it's not realistic. It's not healthy. If you try to do it, you end up looking like that I'll just use my own example, like the 41-year-old on the dance floor trying to pull moves like an 18-year-old. It's just not like this. It's got some, 
there should be room. There should be spotlight and limelight for um, new things to come up. This is how we actually get to test whether Ruby on Rails still should have this place that it does, right? We need newcomers. We need challengers. We need to be get inspired by new ideas. And I think that's the system working as it should. In fact, I'd look. I'd go so far as to say the Ruby on Rails community and influence and purchase on the is like in its ideal place. It is. I, it's literally hard for me to even imagine it being in a better place, given kind of how we got to where we are. Like we are the the outliers of the outliers in terms of longevity, influence, continued um, agenda setting, um, even if it's no longer the hot thing. And I think that that's also what's kind of powering some of the resurgence now. Some of these things are simply just pendulums, right? The pendulum for a while swung very hard into JavaScripting all the things. Oh, isomorphic uh, development. You could do it on the server. And like, then people actually did that for several years. And they're like, actually, I, I don't like this. Couldn't, what if, what if the framework just built all these things in? What if I didn't have to put a thousand puzzle pieces together? And they were like, oh shit, isn't that what Rails is? Maybe we should give it another look. So I, what I'm seeing right now is actually a pendulum swing in the other direction, not just for Rails, but on the whole front end question. I mean, fucking React. Of all frameworks, it's like, oh, uh, did you guys know that server-side rendering is actually good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you kind of digging in and sharing like the perspective of Rails not being like the hot thing anymore, and that's that's okay. And it keeps people like me busy in the, as a consultant in this space. And I do know that there are people out there. You know, you, you mentioned that it's difficult to hire experienced Ruby on Rails developers. I think there's there was a like, kind of a bubble of a lot of juniors because a lot of boot camps were. I wouldn't say churning them out, but a lot of people were using it. And then a lot of companies weren't able to really figure out how to embrace junior developers uh, in some ways. Have you, has Basecamp been able to sort that out? Do you have like people that aren't, that are kind of new to engineering, like junior type developers? And how, how do you handle onboarding there for people? Yeah. I don't think there's any shortcuts. And I think it doesn't have a lot to do with Ruby and Rails in that regard when you're looking at the very junior end of it. We've run an intern projects some years. Um, uh, George, who's now on Rails Core, came at Basecamp through an internship program um, and got all the way up through. And I spent a lot of time with him over the years simply just like, got to work on code. Like th that's the way to do it. If, if, if you're cultivating and helping develop new junior talent, which I think you should, um, then that's the work. No real short, shortcuts there. You got to sit down, you got to do um, the pull request reviews, you got to do all the, the work it takes to, to bring that up. I'd say perhaps hiring is not one of those things where I'd say like we have a issue attracting candidates, usually it's kind of a little bit the opposite, um, but maybe we, well not maybe, we probably are in a bit of a unique situation, both because we have sort of profile in the industry of some kind, but also because we just pay exceptionally well and have great benefits and we do the remote work thing and so on. So when we have job hosting, we, we often, I think the last one we had like eight or 900 programmers apply for, um, and a lot of those were, were great. So the work was more like, how do you sort of pare it down and so on. I'd say though that the, the, the fact that like it's difficult to find experienced uh, Rails programmers just goes to that point uh, that like, you can't, making the argument like, hey, uh, no one goes there anymore, it's too crowded, right? Like, wait a minute, like if you're having trouble attracting great Rails developers, it's because there's simply high demand for great Rails developers and they're already employed <laughs> and they're probably already making top money in the industry as seen by some st studies. So if you come in and like, oh yeah, I would like to hire a um, expert senior Rails developer and I can pay $42,000 a year. Yeah, that's, you're gonna come up short on that offer. That is not an attractive offer that's at market uh, rates and you need to do something else. I mean, you need to develop junior talent or you need to hire out to the US or, or, or do these other things, which is in that regard, at least in my opinion, the market working. Um, in terms of bringing junior developers uh, on, I think a lot of it or too much of it, or too much emphasis has been put on like, oh, what kind of framework and so on could we could we do? Which it is important. And for example, at Basecamp, we actually, we don't hire developers who don't have any experience with Ruby and Rails, simply because there's enough of them that do that we can do that. But 
the bulk of the work that takes someone from being like, oh, I'm a junior programmer who knows something about Rails to I'm a great Rails programmer, is not very much Rails and very much you becoming a better software developer. And, and that is just sort of the long, studious path or the journey, if you will, of becoming a better developer and doing that in concert with mentors at a company, which in our perspective mostly means working with someone else on code, then going away, writing your own code a little bit, then taking it back. And, and, and it's a process that takes a long time. And it's, it's, a, it's been, in my experience, it's been worth the investment. And, and you end up learning a lot, I think, about, have you, do you feel like that's helped you grow as a software developer as well? Yes. I mean, there's nothing like trying to explain to someone else why you do the things that you do that make you think about why you do those things uh, and articulate and interrogate, actually, are those things good? Why do we do those things? Do I just do them because I've always done them or do I do them because they result in better code? Um, so I, I enjoy that even though I'm, I'm not I'm not good at it. Like, I'm not a good teacher. I don't have the patience to be a good teacher. I only enjoy teaching if the student essentially gets the first time, which is a horribly arrogant, no good, very bad approach to being a good teacher. So I'm, I just recognize that about myself, that like I can at most just be a part of a teaching experience, but know your limitations there. So a couple of quick last questions. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending on a regular basis? Oh, there's so many. I think reading is one of those things I've, I've really grown very fond of in the past decade or so, particularly after I discovered that there's more to reading than just reading trite business books written in the last few years and a bunch of technical books. Um, I've been a big fan of uh, a variety of sort of life philosophies. Stoicism is one I've talked about a lot. Uh, an intro to that that's really good is called The Guide to the Good Life. And pair that then with one of the original texts that's really short called The Manual, which is uh, probably the, the highest page-to-punch uh, ratio of any book I've ever written, uh, read, and it's like 45-minute read. I love those two. And then also, I, I've finally, um, exact, I'm not exactly revealing anything deep here, but uh, uh, developed an appreciation for, for fiction, and particularly in the style of sort of societal critiques like um, The Trial by Kafka or uh, Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky or some of these other things that are teaching us about insights of humanity through storytelling. So that's where I spend the most of my reading now. It's, it, I don't actually read a lot of technical books. I will occasionally go on like, oh, I wonder what's new. And then I'll download a bunch of technical books and then I'll skim through them sort of to see if I find something. And occasionally I do. I mean, in fact, the last thing I really dove into was Docker and Kubernetes and all that setup, just because I'm like, hey, we're using all these technologies. I should have a fundamental understanding of how these things work. So I did the whole course on that. I got to say, like, it didn't speak to me in terms of like, wow, that was just great. I just did it more out of professional maintenance um, versus when it comes to Ruby, for example. It, that's not just professional maintenance. That's a labor of love. Nice. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, David. Thank you so much for talking shop with us and sharing stories about Basecamp and behind the scenes there. My pleasure. Maintainable.